Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these SALT Talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited to talk about some of those ideas today with Mr. Greg Gibb. Uh, Greg is the Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of Lufax, and he's been in that role since December of 2011. Uh, before joining Ping On, uh, Mr. Gibb served as the Global Senior Director of McKinsey and & Company, and subsequently the Operating Director of Taiwan Taishin Financial Holding Company. He has more than 20 years of work experience in both multinational and domestic companies, of the financial and investment industries. He obtained a bachelor's degree in East Asian Studies at Middlebury College, uh, Middlebury University, excuse me. Uh, Mr. Gibb was introduced to the National 1000 Foreign Expert Plan of the Organization Department of the CPC Central Committee in 2012, awarded the Shanghai Top 10 Financial Innovation Figures of 2012 Award, and honored as the China Top 10 Leaders of Internet Finance in 2013 for his unique and widely recognized insight about innovative financial services. Uh, Mr. Gibb is the author of two great books, uh, Banking in Asia, The End of Entitlement, and Banking in Asia, Acquiring a Profit Mindset, which introduce bankers' development opportunities in Asia. Uh, the way this talk is gonna go today, Greg is gonna give a presentation about the future of uh, innovative finance uh, in China through the work that Lufax is doing. And then we're going to host a Q&A session uh, after the presentation with Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm. Anthony is also the chairman of SALT. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Greg first to give a presentation about Lufax and the fintech ecosystem that's building uh, in China. Go ahead, Greg. Right. Thank you, John. Uh, so I'm going to uh, move through pretty quickly here, but I, I know we have some time for questions uh, at the end. Um, if we could just go uh, to the next page, um, the, the really the story of, um, of fintech in China is is first world technology meeting emerging market need uh, and really uh, trying to address a lot of uh, unmet uh, requirements of the market here. And we really try and make our retail borrowing and wealth management easier, uh, safer and more efficient. So that's kind of our uh, positioning in China. Um, if we go uh, and sort of look at our unique positioning or our highlights, it starts with the fact that we really focus on two core segments in China, uh, small business owners uh, and the middle class uh, for wealth management. And these are two very large markets that are evolving quite quickly. The way we do it is through a unique capital light hub and spoke model, which I'll go through. And the entire process end to end and all that we do is really very tech and AI driven. And this is really tech that allows us to select the right clients, uh, and match them to the right product in a, in a totally digital environment. We do benefit a lot from the fact that we're part of the Pingon group, uh, and Pingon has more than 200 million uh, financial service customers here in China, uh, and that creates a lot of synergies uh, for us. And our team, you know, we're talking about FinTech, our team is quite unique uh, in the fact that we're very deep on the Fin side, probably deeper uh, than any other platforms that are operating uh, here in China. 
Um, everyone knows China obviously has been the second largest economy since 2010. Uh, the areas that we focus in, number one, is small businesses. So we have more than 100 million small businesses here in China that make up uh, 60% of the GDP. So it's, it's a big part of the economy. Uh, and then on the wealth side, you can see that the personal wealth in China, sorry, on the last page, is uh, about 25 trillion US. Uh, and almost uh, 40% of that is, uh, is derived from uh, the middle class, uh, who has very quick uh, needs emerging uh, as the economy evolves. Um, if we look at the underlying of what's driving growth in China in these spaces, is it, for the small business owner, the key issue is availability of credit. Uh, and you can see here that the leverage ratio in China is still lower than the U.S. Small businesses, uh, in terms of their, their loan balance to income ratio, is 27% versus 41% in the U.S. And the availability of financing to these small businesses, particularly those that don't have collateral from the banking system, is quite poor. So there's actually huge unmet need, uh, and that is really need that we're tapping. And just to be very clear, what we're doing here is we're serving the individual who's a small business owner, but the money that we lend is used for their business. Uh, and this is really kind of a unique uh, space uh, here in China that allows us to grow north of 20, 25% uh, in, this, uh, in this area. On the wealth side, everyone knows savings rates in China are very high. What's very interesting though, is the financial asset formation is still very low. So about 15% in financial assets of total personal savings uh, versus 74% in the US. And so we have a situation here where a lot of the Chinese wealth is still sitting in deposits, uh, but that is really mobilizing. You know, you've, you've seen a lot of headlines over the last year about asset managers trying to get into China. And that's really because the regulations are pushing for capital market development and pushing retail to go into those markets with a lot of new products. So you have a big shift in wealth in addition to growth. So this is a space that the AUM in the market, uh, particularly online, is north of 25% growth probably for the foreseeable future. So quite a large foundation. Um, if we go here, I just want to talk a little bit about uh, how we play. Uh, so in our two core spaces, starting on the left here with retail credit facilitation, what we're doing is sourcing small business owners. We're evaluating them uh, and then through our tech platform, connecting them to more than 50 funding partners real time. Uh, so the whole process, uh, once we've uh, contacted a customer, uh, everything is done digitally, uh, the evaluation and the funding of that loan takes less than 30 minutes. Uh, and that is all connected through a network of, of more than 50 partners that we work with to get that done. Um, and again, through the sourcing, the, the, the underwriting, and eventually the collection, all of that is done digitally. Um, and we're, what we're doing here is really providing larger tickets, longer term loans to this, this group of, uh, of customers. And we benefit a lot from the fact that we've been doing this for 15 years. Uh, so we've accumulated a lot of proprietary data that really allows us to make those risk decisions. On the right hand side here, we have our wealth management hub. Here, what we're doing is connecting the, the rising middle class investor to more than 400 product providers. Uh, and here the tech is really about doing the matching, is getting the customer into the right product. And increasingly those products are all uh, capital market driven. So as they have daily volatility, then following up with content to give customers the right direction. Uh, so they're building the right portfolios for themselves. And so this whole process is done and recorded on blockchain uh, to really make sure that uh, customers in terms of suitable selling and everything is well tracked uh, and you can handle any anything that happens as the markets uh, evolve. 
Um, if we go to um, our market position, so in retail credit, this space, we're number two in the market. Uh, and this goes back to June last year, uh, where we had about 500 billion RMB uh, in loans that we had helped facilitate. Um, and that was in the first half of last year, generating about 24 billion uh, RMB. I'm oh, sorry, 20, yeah, 24 billion RMB. Um, what's interesting here is everyone always asks us, how big are you next to Ant? Because uh, we're number two and, and Ant is number one. Uh, so Ant is roughly four times our size at the same time uh, period here. What's interesting though is we were generating about 80% of their revenue. And so this starts to speak to the dynamics of, you know, given the segment that we're serving uh, and the way we do it, it generates a very high uh, profit margin. On the well side, we're number three in the market. Uh, with that period last year of June, 375 billion uh, in, in AUM. And that's about 500 billion in trading volume uh, on the platform. So we're in a very strong market position in the space that continues to grow uh, quite quickly. Um, if we go to page 10 here, um, again, the comparison with Ant, because then whenever I have a chance to talk to investors, uh, you know, half the questions are, how do we compare with Ant? And so I'll just take a second here. Um, if you look at the uh, borrowers that we serve, our average ticket size is roughly 20 to 30 times uh, the average ticket size that Ant serves. So we're really helping small business owners provide them funding uh, to manage their business. Ant has really built themselves around uh, small ticket, shorter duration consumption loans. And so there's a very different uh, in terms of segment uh, and size. And there's a similar story on wealth management where our average investor is about four or five times the size uh, of an investor on Ant. So that's one big difference is really segment. The second is uh, we really are deep in our focus for the uh, retail credit and for the wealth management. And Ant obviously uh, is a super app. Uh, so they're, they're covering a broader space. We're very focused where, whereas they're broader. And if you look along the bottom here at pre-tax margins uh, over the last couple of years, we've, we've always been north of 30%. So we, we grow at nice double digit levels, but we've always sustained that 30% plus uh, pre-tax profit margin. If you look at the right here, uh, Ant has obviously grown very quickly, but as they have many different businesses ranging from payments to insurance to other super app functions, they have to double down and invest often uh, as they build their businesses. So they've had a much uh, greater degree of volatility uh, in their net margins uh, over time. So there is a difference of profile in terms of how, we, how we've grown over the last couple of years versus Ant. Um, if we go uh, here, I just want to go a little bit deeper uh, into how our platform works. So we're talking about small business owners. These are, these are um, uh, customers that we're serving as individuals, so all the lending is to the individual. Uh, they typically will have five to 20 employees. Their typical annual revenue would be one to two million US dollars or less. So they, these are really kind of micro businesses. But these are very interesting uh, individuals in the sense that a lot of them have life insurance policies, you know, 60% of them uh, own one or two properties, uh, individual properties. Uh, but 60% of them also have not been able to get an unsecured loan from any bank in the last five years. Uh, banks in China really only want to serve customers who have collateral. Uh, and obviously, Jack had his famous comment about how he saw the banking sector, which I won't repeat here, but it is an issue that these small business uh, uh, owners really don't have access to, to capital without collateral. Uh, and so we're really serving them mostly in an unsecured, with an unsecured product uh, to meet their needs. Uh, and the typical loan size is about 25,000 US. 
and the typical duration is about two to three years. So we source these customers. We have this. We do actually have a very large offline sales force of about sixty thousand people around China. We also work with Ping An, who obviously has a very large uh, set of insurance businesses uh, that helps refer customers offline to our online uh, platform. And then the hub in the middle here basically does all the analysis, does all the connection to the funding, uh, and then follows up on collections. And on to the right here are our funding partners. So we work with more than 50 banks, more than five trust companies, uh, and a number of insurance companies to provide part of the credit enhancement in the model. We take about today on new loans, about 20% of the risk. Uh, and the other 80% of the risk is borne by either our credit enhancement partners uh, or our funding partners. Um, just to talk a little bit about the data side of this. So, um, you know, we spend a lot of time really evaluating that individual, and we also spend time evaluating their business. Uh, and we built up 15 years proprietary data to do that. And that's all going in, obviously, to our, our database. And we're constantly using machine learning to refine uh, how we judge risk uh, for these individuals. We price the loans today anywhere between 15% uh, and 24% APR. Uh, and again, those credit decisions with our models today are all made now in a matter of minutes. We actually don't take any information, physical information from the customer. Uh, everything they do is authorized through the app. We then scan all of the data that we have uh, and then make a decision. Uh, and increasingly, if there's an interface with the customer to ask them a few more questions, if we need a little bit more understanding, that's all done with AI robots today uh, to drive that interaction. Um, our sales force, obviously very large offline, but we direct them to where we think the best customers are uh, to help get the right quality. And then when it comes to collections, a lot of that is done today uh, by chatbots uh, and differentiated with the data. So maybe just give you a feel uh, of how this kind of looks today uh, from the perspective of a customer, uh, a small business owner applying for a loan. So we'll play a short video here uh, so you can see how the process works. As the retail credit facilitation platform of Lufax Holdings, Pingon Puhui always strives to provide innovative solutions to our massive client base. Pingon Puhui introduced the first AI plus video loan application experience in the world by leveraging several technologies to create a redefined borrowing experience for every customer. Seamless credit approval supported by our personal and SME big data-based credit inquiry platform, making loan applications more efficient. Our intelligent voice recognition technology frees our customers from any text input. Our multiple cutting-edge anti-fraud technologies and AI instant approval help achieve a frictionless customer credit application process and zero waiting time for every customer. Our AI customer service is able to provide real-time assistance and give customers a secure application process. Video 3.0, Ping on Puhui, redefining the loan application process with AI plus video technology. Lufax Holdings, better technology, better financial life. 
so what you saw on the on the app there was actually our chatbot. So that's not a that's not a real person um, uh, who's really driving the interaction. Because what we want to do uh, increasingly is just be able to ask customers a series of questions uh, that we then validate um, with you know more than fifty million data points in the background in terms of this proprietary capability we've built up over the last. Uh, 15 years to help make a credit decision. What are, what are the technologies we do apply uh, while they're interacting with the app is when we ask them questions is, uh, is facial recognition and lie detection. Uh, so, you know, if the, if the question is being asked and the answer looks a bit strange in terms of their facial recognition, that goes into the, uh, the credit decision. So it's really um, a very tech driven uh, application. Um, and that really flows through also to how we source the customers, how we uh, drive our sales force to go into various cities, uh, into various parts of the cities to try and find customers that have those needs who we think will also be good credit. So we kind of start that uh, from the from the upfront. Uh, and then collections, we do have um, 9,500 collectors uh, in nine centers. Uh, but most of the collection is driven up front by chatbots. And then for the harder cases, a human will come in. Um, as needed. So really the end-to-end -end processing here is all driven off of our, off of our platform. Um, you know, a point here on data, uh, there's a lot of debate about what types of data can you use today uh, to really make uh, good credit decisions. Uh, and we break data into two types. We break it into sort of what we call, you know, hard credit and financial data, which gives you some sense of the person's background and how they've bought insurance over time, uh, how they paid their bills over time. That's what we call financial data. And then there's behavioral data, which is e-commerce data, social data. And when you're, when you're making a credit decision, you're really looking at two angles. The first is the person's willingness to repay. And the second is their ability to repay. Uh, and what we find, and you see these two bars here on the left, when we're making the first part of the decision on willingness to repay, both financial data and behavioral data are very useful in the model. So financial data here is weighted at a 58% and social and other data at 42%. But given that we're making longer term loans uh, for larger amounts, uh, when it comes to the predictiveness of what is gonna, you know, the, this person's ability to repay, then the financial data in our model gets weighted at 92%. And so this is really uh, unique because very few or really most of our competitors do not have the degree of financial data that we have over these 15 years refined around this customer segment. Uh, you know, our other tech platform competitors do have a lot of behavioral data, but we found that that behavioral data is really only effective for small short-term loans. Because when you're making a large loan, what really matters is ability to repay. Uh, and so that's really our unique underlying capability here to serve this segment. And it's very hard for others to replicate what we've built in terms of that offline to online sales capability, then having the data to really make the right credit decisions, and then having funding partners who, who trust your data capabilities and analysis to then fund those loans, or in the case of our credit insurance partners, to provide the credit enhancement. So this is really uh, what we've been able to tie together uh, over a number of years. Uh, if we go to the wealth side, um, what we're doing here is uh, the middle class in China is a population of about 150 to 200 million people. Um, and the customer where they're serving uh, typically uh, has investable wealth of anywhere from $5,000 up to about 500,000 US dollars. So they don't quite fit into the bucket yet of being high net worth. When they go to a bank, they're not getting served by a private banker. They're still really uh, only uh, having access to counter services. 
Uh, but these customers, when they start to have a couple hundred thousand US dollars, they actually need to figure out how they're going to invest for their retirement. Um, there's been a lot of change on the regulatory side in China where the whole wealth management market has shifted and is shifting from purely fixed income uh, to customers really having to start to explore equities uh, and build portfolios and get the right diversification. Uh, and it is a challenge because today when people buy mutual funds in China, if they buy a fund directly, the average holding period is about 100 days. Um, you know, and when you start to get them into portfolios, we can get that up to 200 days, 300 days, which is obviously critical <laughs> to generate a healthy return. So what we're doing on our platform is uh, connecting these customers entirely online. Uh, and then we have 400 product providers in the background. Uh, and it's really using the data on the customer and the product and the markets to drive matching, to really get them to the right product and the right portfolio uh, over time. So they can start to generate um, those uh, sustainable returns. Because in China, fixed income and interest uh, products, you know, a lot of the money, still 50% of it being in deposits today in China, obviously the rates are going down. Uh, and so if a Chinese uh, retail investor wants to beat inflation, they have to now gain exposure to capital markets. And so that's what we're really doing here is driving the reallocation of that wealth and giving the customer a service level that they would normally get by the time they're a private banking customer. But we're giving them that expertise in an online environment uh, at a lower uh, entry point. Uh, and there's really very, relatively few platforms that focus on this segment. Our large competitors typically who have a, a larger, broader customer base are typically serving the more mass market. Uh, and it's really through expertise uh, that we're differentiating for our target group. Um, the entire process that we have on the wealth side has a lot of data on the customer to really figure out what their um, wealth level is, what their risk tolerance is, and we're matching that with a lot of data from the product side, uh, and then we're doing AI-driven matching. Uh, you know, we have 8,000 products on the platform. Customers don't want to see 8,000 products. They want to see the two or three products that are relevant to them in the current market condition. Uh, and increasingly, we're using that data and our knowledge of the customer to get them into portfolios so they can get more diversified, so they can drive up those holding periods. And once a customer goes into a product, we have chatbots that will nudge them which will remind them of things they should do or not do. We also do social comparison to say, you know, what you're doing is similar to people that are similar to you. Uh, you're, you're better or worse in certain ways, right? You're, you're, you have too much concentration risk. You're actually doing a better job in certain areas to really educate the customers on how to better invest. And the whole process of what the customer does with us on the app, everything that they see, every uh, box that they click, every uh, contract that they agree to, is all recorded on blockchain. And this really helps us ensure suitable selling throughout the process. You can't face a situation where a customer buys a product six months later, they lose money, and they said, I didn't know. Uh, and so really having that capability as an independent uh, verification uh, is critical uh, in the regulatory environment uh, as well. So all of this is done in, in, in Lufax, uh, but we do benefit from being part of the Pigon uh, ecosystem. Uh, and, and Ping An obviously is a, is a huge uh, financial uh, platform in China with insurance, banking, securities, et cetera, uh, and invests very, very heavily in, in, in technology, uh, facial recognition, voice recognition, AI, chatbot development. Uh, and so we, are, we have early access to that technology. We have our own, everything we do with the customers, our risk, our interfaces developed by ourselves. But behind that, we benefit a lot from the big investment that Ping An has in technology. Obviously, being associated with Ping An from a brand perspective, 
is very, very helpful and helps drive down our acquisition costs uh, for both borrowers and investors. Uh, and then given the amount of uh, data and experience that Ping-On has, we can test our models against, against a broader base of customers by the time that we rolled them out on our platform. So the synergies we gain here from analytical insights that we gain here um, are, are substantial uh, and a big benefit for us. Um, finally, on, uh, on page 18 here, um, <clears throat> obviously uh, regulation uh, in China FinTech is a big issue. Uh, and I think what distinguishes our team is we, we do have very strong technology, but we probably have the deepest bench uh, in terms of financial DNA uh, of having that expertise <clears throat> internationally, domestically, uh, you know, to continue to revise our strategies and the way we operate uh, to meet the market needs, but also to really anticipate uh, the regulatory environment. Uh, so maybe I will uh, stop here and we can, we can move into questions. All right, fantastic. I'll let Anthony uh, start off with the questions, but I have a lot of uh, questions for you as well. It's fascinating stuff that you guys have built. Well, listen, over there, it's, a, it's a terrific presentation, but also congratulations, obviously, on the company. But my first questions are somewhat U.S.-centric, if you'll forgive me, because we, we really want to make this introduction, Greg, to the U.S. investors, as among, among other investors, of course. But how has the Chinese economy evolving? How is it evolving in terms of small business formation and household affluence, uh, even prior to COVID-19? And what impact has the pandemic had on those trends? So um, the, the issue for small business owners in China, uh, pre-crisis, pre-COVID, uh, and today remains very large the same, which is they're a very big part of the economy but a lot of them just cannot get funding from banks. Um, and uh, the, what's happened as a result of COVID is the policy push uh, around small businesses has increased. Uh, so what we're seeing from our funding partners is a lot more demand for more asset, particularly in that small business space because policy is driving them to do more of it. Our funding partners here, Anthony, are small, medium-sized banks. Uh, they don't necessarily have the national footprint. They don't necessarily have the scale. They don't necessarily have the data in order to be able to serve these customers uh, without our cooperation. So the, the COVID uh, impact has been that the banks, given the policy changes, want to do more business with us. Uh, what we've also seen, particularly on the wealth side, uh, you know, that, that wealth formation, uh, you know, with all, this, all the things that people typically talk about with China, right, the growing urbanization, the growth of the middle class, all that stuff, what, what we saw happen in COVID, of course, was a, a, a much accelerated move to online. You know, there was, there was a, in China as well, a couple of months where people couldn't go to banks, didn't want to go to banks, uh, and, and, and they have come to us uh, much more dramatically online. Obviously, the stock market in China, uh, despite recent days being down over the last 12 months, you know, the average mutual fund return last year in China was north of 40%. So you've seen a, a, a real drive, uh, again, with the stimulus packages that have been going on around the world, um, you know, accelerated online trading and investment behavior. So I think things that were true before COVID are, are, are still true, uh, but there was an acceleration of, of some trends there. You, you, uh, you talk a lot about the differences between the consumer and, and household financial behavior related to debt and investing. So how would you compare that between China and the United States? And are there, are there cultural forces that are unique to each country? 
I, I think it's it's harder to say that it's uh, that it, there's cultural differences. I think as um, you know, as people get wealthier uh, and as people have more businesses or they have more retirement concerns, uh, you know, China's uh, regulation and, and, and people's behavior does look more and more like rest of world over time. Um, I think that the biggest differences are with with the small business side is that in the US retail banking, uh, small business related banking has developed over the last, what, 50, 70 years, right? It's, 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 quite, it's quite well developed. In China, you know, retail banking is kind of 20 years old or less. Um, and, and most banks really don't specialize around small businesses. So it's really a supply side difference, I would say, uh, in China uh, for the small business side. On the wealth side, um, the biggest difference is is really this: most of the of the of the wealth product in China over the last decade was essentially debt to real estate companies, repackaged as wealth products. So it was a fixed income market. Um, in the last two years, uh, under the central uh, bank, all these policies have come out to really make all product standardized and to basically be tradable uh, on the exchanges. Uh, and so wealth is being pushed from the debt side, really to the equity side. And so this is driving a huge shift. Uh, and, and, you know, if you look at the United States, you know, what percentage of savings are in equity or mutual fund products? I guess it would be north of 30, 40 uh, percent. You know, in China, that number is less than 10 percent today. So there really is this huge shift that's being driven by policy. And frankly, what China is trying to do what the overall regulators are trying to do in China is improve their debt to equity ratio. Uh, and given that retail money is such a big part of the equation here, you know, they're trying to get less debt uh, on the books and really build up more of the equity side. So there's this huge shift in the way that wealth is being driven. Talk about, talk about AI for a second and, and the role that it plays in the underwriting process and what conditions in China make it a leader in the development of AI. So um, really over the last decade, um, particularly with the huge penetration of, of mobile uh, and, and mobile phones. You know, there's obviously been a huge amount of data uh, that's been uh, acquired um, <clears throat> throughout the society. You know, obviously huge, fast growing e-commerce behaviors and the rest. And that data, um, you know, has been increasingly used and tested uh, against <clears throat> important decisions on evaluating customers and product and risk. Uh, and so, the, the huge availability of data on a very huge uh, population uh, now acquired over a decade has really allowed uh, platforms like ourselves to use a lot more variables that <clears throat> allow you to judge risk in an online environment or a mobile environment that wouldn't have been possible, you know, seven, eight years ago. Uh, and so, but also this data is changing, right? China is obviously a huge place. Uh, the provinces are very different. Right. The economics across the provinces are very different. So you have to be able to tune for different geographies. You have to be able to tune for different customer segments uh, and be able to do that dynamically. So the, the availability of data, the deep penetration of mobile um, and then really the experience now to be able to do that in a totally digital way uh, with very high efficiency just keeps keeps churning on itself. Uh, and so with the machine learning and everything, you're getting a lot of optimization throughout. You. You talk about, you know, how does the relationship with Ping and make you well positioned to tackle the financial needs of the Chinese consumer? Tell us a little bit more about that relationship. 
Sure. So uh, yeah, Pingon, as you may know, uh, has uh, started about 30, 33, 34 years ago in China. It's you know one of the largest insurance companies in the world now, uh, but it has 27 different financial licenses as of recent count. Uh, so it's very deep uh, and broad across the market. Um, you know, people that, uh, that that have ping on insurance and the, and the like are typically these middle class uh, consumers. Uh, a lot of them are small business owners. So that foundation gives us a lot of access to very good customer. Uh, you know, <clears throat> given they've been operating in these spaces for 20, 30 years, it also gives us a lot of good data to tune our models. Uh, and it also has a very strong brand. And I, it, but increasingly in fintech, the issue is also regulation, right? So the relationships that Pingon has built over the last 30 years with regulators as a trusted party, the way that it handles uh, all kinds of compliance risks and credit risks uh, is also very important to earning trust uh, of those that uh, that you're working with. So, uh, you know, Pingon is, uh, is, a, is a huge brand advantage. Um, it's a huge technology advantage. Uh, it's a big uh, source for uh, efficient acquisition of customers uh, but also increasingly, it's a very important base of trust uh, as you deal with regulators as they're kind of redesigning how they want the future to look. Chinese regulators have recently adjusted rules around microloans and bank internet lending, which most notably shelved the IPO of Am Financial, which we both know. But can you explain the reasons for that regulatory decision and what impact, if any, it has on businesses like Lou Fox? So um, basically, uh, over the last five years, uh, platforms like ourselves uh, have started to you know, provide um, a lot of the facilitation for credit in China uh, for retail, <clears throat> for small business owners. And the regulators were looking at this and saying, OK, so you guys are sourcing the customers. <clears throat> you claim to have great data models. Uh, you claim to have the risk under control, but the funding is coming from our banks. Uh, and, and do our banks really know enough about what's in the black box? Um, you know, at the end of the day, the banks are the ones that have to hold the capital. It's the financial institutions that are bearing most of the risk. So, you know, this has been an issue that the regulators have been watching for a couple of years, but really uh, September last year, the regulators started to signal to people like us that we want you guys to have skin in the game. Right. You know, yes, the funding can come, you know, majority of the funding, 70, 80 percent could come from financial partners. But you as a platform need to bear 20 to 30 percent of the risk. And, you know, you've got to bear the, the right capital behind that risk as well, because if you get it wrong, we want you guys to, you know, to share the pain uh, and make sure that there's therefore no moral hazard that as a platform developing very quickly that, you know, you basically grow very quickly and then someone takes someone else has to take care of the problem. What did I miss, John Dorsey? Anything? Pretty exceptional story. Yeah, I got I got a few questions myself, uh, Greg, if you don't mind. You talked about blockchain, how you guys are at the front of so many different movements across technology and fintech specifically, whether it be um, you know, using AI, using facial recognition for credit worthiness as a, as a variable into credit worthiness. But blockchain, the blockchain piece of it is very interesting to me. And in China, you know, there's certain restrictions on things like Bitcoin, but China is very forward thinking as it relates to central bank digital currencies. They're digitizing the yuan, as, as most viewers probably know. How did you guys think about the development of blockchain? Why is blockchain technology for, for you guys the best solution? And what do you think the future of digital assets and blockchain oriented technologies are within China? 
So, you know, as you move to a world where everything is, is being done through a mobile phone uh, and you're, you're dealing with transactions in the, in, the, in the tens of billions and hundreds of billions of dollars um, and you, you've got contracts and you've got verification uh, items that are very important, both in terms of verifying that the customer is who they say they are, that the money is from where they say it is, uh, and that those contracts are agreed as they say. You know, if it was just left <clears throat> to us as a private company to say, listen to us, we've, we've sorted all of our database. If there's any issues, just check our database. You know, people are gonna challenge that heavily. Uh, and so really having the ability uh, to not only as your data comes in that you're using to make decisions, but everything that happens on the platform to put that back into an independent place that anybody can go look at, right? If the regulators wanna know what's going on, it's always there. Uh, and so that independence and the certainty that brings, and therefore the trust that it brings uh, to a purely digital world uh, is very important. And obviously China is a big and fast changing place. And there's a lot of physical paper that you just would never trust. Uh, you know, we, uh, if you went back five or six years ago, part of our credit process is people had to bring in income proof and, you know, house ownership proof, all that sort of thing. And there was just a huge amount of fraud, right? And it really wasn't efficient. Uh, and so once you're moving to that blockchain to build the trust, to have that independence, and then to really enable the processing in all kinds of ways down the path, just basically helps create that essential trust across Chinese commerce that just you know, is not as easily occurring in the physical world. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating stuff. In terms of the products that are on your platform, you talked about how you have a, a wide suite of products, but you don't you don't want to inundate people with you know questions about what type of products they should be allocating capital to, and you use AI to match them. What types of products are on your platform? You talked about uh, you know less yield oriented products, fixed income products, and more equity type of products. What are the what's the product suite that you have on your platform? What are you looking for in a product in terms of onboarding it onto the platform? And how does that matching engine work in terms of uh, identifying what's right for an individual? So um, there really are two parts to it, but starting with the, with the product side, we have a broad range of products. So you know, at the high end, you've got uh, private equity uh, product on the platform. Uh, you've got you know, 4,000 mutual funds or more on the platform. Uh, you have a growing number of insurance products on the platform. Um, you've got structured products at various levels. So we um, you were really looking at how to uh, drive a rating of those products. Uh, and here we're looking at uh, who's the provider. Uh, at the fund manager level, we're looking down to the level of who is the fund manager, right? Maybe a great fund, fund manager changed yesterday, someone else is running it. That's something you wanna know. Uh, and, and so having the data and being able to update that is what we really call you to know your product at, at, at multiple levels. Uh, and then on the other spectrum is the customer uh, and really the KYC, which is kind of a broader KYC, which is really knowing what their uh, background is, you know, when we used to do this in the beginning, uh, we would let customer fill in surveys, they still do. Uh, but what they were saying in the surveys and what we found through third party data was, was generally not true. Uh, you know, people who said they didn't have money often had money and vice versa. Uh, and so really being able to try and get a, a firm understanding of a customer's experience uh, then determines what we show them on the platform. Uh, so if a customer really comes across to us as conservative, they're only gonna see products that are right for a conservative customer. You know, if we can get comfortable that the person is a qualified investor, does have substantial net worth, then they can maybe see private equity products on the platform. So it's really a screening process. 
Uh, it's then really a matching process. Uh, and of course, what product is right for the customer depends on what's already in their portfolio. It depends what's happening in the markets in terms of what to put forward or suggesting other uh, you know, matches they need to have to get the right balance. So it's a very, very real-time processing to get you to those three or four products that really matter the most to you today. Um, you know, and it's really getting China to probably leapfrog a bit from being purely fixed income in the past to moving to kind of you know, the right portfolio strategies today. Uh, but a lot of that is happening in an online environment uh, rather than you know, a, a counter-by-counter visit. Right. Last question for me. So we have a, a friend of ours, his name is Winston Ma. He used to work for CIC, uh, sort of in, in the venture capital wing of that organization. He wrote a great book about the phenomenon you were talking about earlier, where the explosion in mobile devices and, and the penetration of mobile devices within China gave rise to this massive data set that has enabled the rise of AI and, and this data-driven economy. Those are two sort of macro trends that have developed over the last decade. As you look out over the next decade, what are the, the major macro trends that you're looking at in terms of continuing to see around corners uh, for LUFAX? Is it something like quantum computing? Is it deeper penetration into something like blockchain? But what are the big technology trend that you have your eye on or, or multiple trends uh, in China and around the world right now? So, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, um, with financial services, customers still want uh, a personal touch. <clears throat> they want the, the tailored advice. Uh, you know, as products get more complex, as, as capital markets become more part of the solution and there's more volatility, uh, you know, they still want someone to hold their hand. And we have to be able to, in an online environment, we have to be able to provide that increased touch over time, that increased expertise over time. And in our view, the only way to do it, uh, we think the biggest driver, at least for the next three to five years, is advancing your AI so that you can make your interactions, you can make your chatbots or how chatbots evolve into other service forms uh, to just make it very interactive, very personalized, and to make customers as comfortable as possible with the process. You know, and if you think about how that's gonna change the traditional financial industries, which are still heavily counter-based uh, and individual driven, right? Your ability to drive central control to really make sure customers are getting the best advice, that it's standardized, uh, that it's tested, uh, and that it's rolling out consistently uh, and doing that with a very high touch point at very low cost uh, is where we see, you know, that, that's gonna be a huge impact. It's gonna be a huge impact because some companies will do it well, and there'll be a huge impact because the other companies who don't do it well are gonna find margins changing very quickly. They're gonna find customers' expectations on service levels changing very quickly. So, you know, we, we, we do like the technology angle. We do like to invest in technology, but for us, it's really the application. At the end of the day, it's about service uh, and it's using that technology to create that personal service at a much lower cost point. Greg, it's been a pleasure to have you on Salt Talks. Anthony, do you have a final word before I, uh, I read us no, out of here? No, listen, I think it's, a, it's an amazing business. You're intersecting a lot of things that are going on at the same time. You're uh, innovating through with AI. Uh, you're making things uh, easily available over the blockchain. And uh, you're obviously prepared for the future. And I would say that a lot of financial services companies Greg, frankly, are not prepared for the future. They're operating off of an older model. So it's an interesting vision and a great business plan. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt Talks. Thanks very much. And thank you, everybody uh, who tuned into today's Salt Talk with Greg Gibb of Lufax. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this episode, 
or any of our previous episode of Salt Talks, you can access them on our website at salt.org backslash talks and also on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt Tube. We're also on Twitter. We're most active uh, at Salt Conference there. We're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. And please spread the word about these Salt Talks. I think it's fascinating to have people like Greg on uh, on the show who are in different parts of the world doing really exciting things and disrupting the traditional finance ecosystem. But on behalf of Anthony and the entire SALT team, uh, this is John Darcy signing off from SALT Talks for today. We hope to see you back here soon.